Let me ask you this. Are dogs really better at smelling than humans? Is smell subjective? Why is it so hard to describe smells? What if you could expand the quality of your conscious awareness? What if I told you that you already have that ability? It's right under your nose. You just have to harness it. This is the episode, guys. If I can't get you excited about our sense of smell with this conversation, well, I'm not sure what can. My guest today is as passionate about understanding our sense of smell as I am. And in fact, she's much more versed on the subject than me. She wrote a whole book about our sense of smell called Smellosophy, which is incredibly informative and makes you want to root for this underdog of a sense even more. I sat down with Anne-Sophie Barwick, a cognitive scientist and empirical philosopher who works as an assistant professor at Indiana University, where she researches the cognitive basis of the sense of smell and the conceptual foundations of neuroscience. We talked about so many interesting things in her book, including why she believes our sense of smell is the most reliable sense we have, what people get wrong about smelling, and what she wants people to know about this amazing and underappreciated sense. I think you're in for a real treat. So let's get started. Enjoy my conversation with Anne-Sophie Barwick. This is An Aromatic Life, the podcast that aims to shed light on our beautiful sense of smell and increase its profile in a culture dominated by sight and sound. My name is Frau Kagalia. I'm a certified aromatherapist and smell coach who spent over 20 years in and around the fragrance industry. What I know for sure after all these years is that our sense of smell is powerful, yet is so underappreciated. There's so much we can do to harness our sense of smell to be well. So join me as I explore this mesmerizing sense from all different angles and learn what it can do for you. Enjoy the show. Hey, I want to welcome you to an aromatic life, and Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. No, it's so, I, we talked a little bit before we started recording and we have, I think we have a lot in common. First of all, we're both German um, and we have a lot of experiences with our international names, although your name is slightly easier than mine, but I'm so excited to have you here today because Smellosophy, the book that we'll get into a little bit, a lot, I wish I could talk for two hours with you about this, but we'll get into it and I just want to thank you for writing it. And I, I do because it covers everything. And it's kind of a really great foundation for moving on past, you know, what's it establishes a baseline, I guess is what I want to say. Because a lot of books cover different topics of smell, but this one is so comprehensive and covers all aspects of smell that I think it's just a really great foundation that anybody who's really interested in learning about our sense of smell, this elusive sense. It's just a wonderful book to get to know. Thank you so much for the kind words. This is really, really good to hear because that was actually the plan when I was like, well, you know, I, I wrote this book as something which I would have loved to read when I started out because there's so many kinds of different developments going on. And uh, I, I was trying to do it as comprehensively as possible. The book writing itself actually transformed my life. Uh, it was, it was, I cannot say it otherwise, but the best part of my life so far, I mean, we'll hope for the next years, <laughs> but uh, you, you never know. But uh, it was, it was so much fun. It was transformative, both intellectually, but also personally, because one thing 
I notice is just how diverse the field is in terms of people, opinions, approaches, and how dynamic it is. So I thought, well, the only thing missing I found was kind of a, a basis for communication because you've got the chemists, you've got the computational biologists, you've got the neuroscientists with their mice and their flies, you've got the behavior biologists, you've got the psychologists, then you have people actually who do smell for a living. I mean, in, in, in the kind of practical sense, you've that winemakers, you have perfumers, and all talk in a different language. And so how do you combine the different approaches to smell? And of course, now there's also philosophers who kind of jump in and say, hey, wait a second, this is kind of a sense we completely neglected over the centuries. And so this is really good to hear. Thank you. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's so amazing. We'll get into it in a minute. But I, I like to start all of my podcast interviews with guests with a simple question. I think it's a simple question. I think you will too, because you're really involved in sense of smell, but it's just a simple question. What is your, like, if you had to think about your sense of smell, what does it mean to you personally? Connection. Um, I think it's really the direct material connection and uh, it's something that is both in terms of psychology as well as biology because it's the sense where you your nose literally touches the world by having all these materials these molecules interacting with your receptors and you can tell if you if you go into uh, into a new country if you see a new place you get a feeling for the place. I kind of like to think the nose is almost like your hands uh, to touch the invisible surroundings, things you otherwise couldn't pick up, but that give you a feeling for a place, for time. And that's what makes it so transformative also with memory. If you have a certain scent, it's not like music, which also brings you back to, let's say, your teenage years. If you've got a song that, you know, breakup song, all these kind of things. Yeah, yeah it's it, it has the emotional value. It has the kind of memory value. But it doesn't physically transform you back to the place. Certain smells, not all, otherwise it would be kind of olfactory groundhog day, but certain smells do bring you back almost physically to the time and space. And this is something I do think it connects you to materiality of, of life, of the world. So connection, I would say. Excellent. Excellent. I love that. So tell me, did you think about, like, as you were growing up, did you think much about your sense of smell? Can you recall like when you were, you're laughing, you're smiling because that makes me think you probably didn't. You probably never thought in your life that you'd be writing this, this novel about smell. She's shaking her head. So tell me. <laughs> it, it was accident. It was pure accident, uh, which is what, what, what life is, I think, about. But yeah. no, I didn't think much about smell when I was growing up, when I was a teenager. Also not. I mean, it came fairly late, actually, compared to other people. I know that many perfumers grow up in a, in a family. They're aware of smells. I never had that. And I never thought about it that much. It was pure accident when I was already in my PhD, it was starting to write. I had a different topic. I changed the topic halfway through, which by the way, is not advisable. So uh, it's, it's my, my, my supervisor just looked at me and was like, well, I want to change my topic. I want to do smell. And he looked at me like, are you kidding me? You're halfway through, your funding runs out. You have one and a half years left. It's like, I can do this. Well, naively, but it worked out. Good. And it was, it was an accident because I started with a different topic. I wanted to understand biological classification. So what's the difference between a multicellular organism, an individual, a species, a group of organisms? Oh, interesting. Uh, hard to tell. And uh, at some point, however, I was like, okay, this is nice, but many people do that. So, so what? Um, for some reason, I couldn't answer this simple question. So what? And there was a, there was a talk I saw about smells like, I have no idea how we smell. Why not? I was just 
randomly searching for for things that entertain me basically and yeah. then turns out that nobody knows really how we smell there's so many open questions and I couldn't stop reading about it so wow. my nighttime my nighttime my private reading overtook my daytime reading I couldn't stop so I was like okay I'll just do this I never regretted it since wow yeah what well, we're grateful you did change it so thank you because <laughs> you're really bringing some new concepts and thoughts you know just just spur kind of ideas about what do we still need to understand about our sense of smell and there's so much right but there was a lot of luck involved I mean I met so many interesting people so well when I when I did my PhD um, I was doing a lot of literature research there was kind of more philosophy history based and then I remember I was just uh, I was I just moved to Vienna and I got this email from my thesis examiner, my external thesis examiner, uh, Hazak Chang, who, by the way, does awesome research in the history and philosophy of science on what is, is like about the invention of temperature and water. So really cool stuff. And he wrote me this email. It's like, do you know a guy called Stuart Feierstein? And of course, I knew his name from the papers I was reading. So I was like, oh, yes. Well, he's currently at Cambridge. So you two should meet. So I wrote him an email and he's like, yeah, if you're ever back in the UK, we should meet because I was there for sabbatical. And that was the time where I had my, my kind of graduation ceremony, which I admittedly didn't plan to attend, but this was a good occasion, so yeah. why not? We hit it off. Like I stood in front of his door, it's like, hi, a bit nervous. And he opened the door and I knew I was fine. He was so much fun. We talked the whole evening about the, like he was working a lot on the receptor proteins. He's a neuroscientist and we couldn't stop talking. And I ended up in his lab a couple of years later. Nice. And he, he got me in contact with a lot of other researchers. So he, he of course knows everyone. He knows Linda Buck prior to Linda, Linda Buck being famous. I mean, got getting the Nobel Prize. And right, he when she was a postdoc just you know standing in her lab trying to find these receptors nobody knew of her he he was friends with her so they were at the same place and he knows kind of everyone so he, it, that helped me to just write to people and if they were like who's this weird woman a philosopher writing to me <laughs> uh they could just ask him I was like no no she's fine you can you can talk to her she's she actually means uh to talk to you and and she will not kind of use your words out of context and people were so nice they were incredibly nice you you could just talk to people and then they say oh you should totally talk to my colleague so and so or you talk to so and so and i i wish i could have actually done many more interviews and also many of these interviews were hours and hours on end so i feel a little bit bad that i couldn't include all of them in yeah. the complete scope but the book had to be readable i mean in a, in a, in oh, a, in it's, a it's very a... comprehensive it's very comprehensive as it is but maybe there's a volume two and <laughs> oh my I goodness <laughs> i need first i need a, i need i need a break to recover from the book writing at oh, some I point i, I just call it the thing <laughs> the thing <laughs> the, the thing working title yes well let me ask you i mean we're going to get into some of the details of it but i wanted to ask you why do you think our sense of smell is so underappreciated and so underrepresented is it because it's so elusive and it's just I don't know quote easier to think about hearing and sight I don't know why is it 
I think because we can't constantly track it. So it's it's jumping between consciousness and unconsciousness all uh -huh. the time. With vision, you're constantly aware of seeing things, even if you're not tracking an object all the time, but you've got a constant input, uh, much less than you think you have, but at least there's a constant con conscious awareness of visual perception. With smell, it's in and out the whole time. And I think this is very useful, of course. Many people say, well, that just shows like how, how we kind of evolve beyond it. No, you would go mental if you were aware of every smell all the time yes. everywhere because this is why dogs are constantly distracted uh, yes. and you know when there's a smell and you can't get rid of it you can't focus on anything else it's there in your mind the whole time so it's good that you're not constantly consciously aware uh, of smells but I think this is why people underestimate it because it's not at the foreground but in the backseat of their consciousness but I do think this is why smell is so important because it tells us more about the mind by what underlies it. How does it work? Because vision is very deceptive, actually. We think we see a lot, but we can be so easily fooled. Every vision researcher knows that you can fool a subject with illusions, with certain attention games, with smell. People think they're deceived more often, but I think they're deceived much less than, than they believe they are. So let's get into your book, Smellosophy. I want everybody to get it. I'm going to have a link in the, the show notes. This is Thank a book you. you definitely want to read. No, I mean it. I, I truly mean it. Um, if anybody who's interested in smell, I mean, I have people who listen who are from the perfumery community. So I know you talk to them. Um, the aromatherapy community, the anosmic community. So there's a lot of people who listen who don't have a sense of smell, who have a distorted sense, you know, all the, the osmia gamut. So a lot of people who are just generally interested in their sense of smell. So um, I want to get into some of that stuff here. I do want to just because I love what you did in the book and you just talked about it a little bit, but I wanted to bring it to the attention of my listeners again. There's something really wonderful about this book in the sense that it's comprehensive from all the different scientific angles, as you mentioned. So one of the things you do in the book is you say, well, if you ask a scientist, what is an odor, right? You're going to get lots of different answers. So can I just share that with the listeners for a minute? So like a chemist would say, the hydroxyl group that gives you the odor is the smell, right? The biologist would notice how the odor makes your body respond. The neuroscientist would notice how the odor makes you behave. The cognitive psychologist would notice how you perceive, remember, and then talk about the odor. The philosopher um, would notice if the odor is real or not. And the perfumer would notice how pleasing the odor is. So there's so many different angles of approaching our sense of smell. And there's so many things we still need to understand about it. And this. This book does such a good job of kind of sharing these different perspectives. And I'm just wondering, as a scientist yourself and an educator, um, do you think there's an opportunity for science to come together a little bit more? I feel like everybody's working in silos on different aspects of it, but wouldn't there be a beautiful thing if more of this could be integrated? I hope so. Uh, there is definitely the strive towards that. And uh, there, are, there are some societies, of course, that have been formed for the last couple of decades. You've got the American, uh, you've got the Association of Chemoreception Sciences in, in, the, in the, the Western Hemisphere, in the US, North America. And you've got uh, ECRO, the European version of that, which actually this year has its 50 year anniversary. So this wow. is kind of pretty. Yeah, I wish I could go, but the travel ban does not let me to. So, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> 
but at least people try that. The problem, of course, is, and I think this is the structure of modern scientific funding. This is less the researchers themselves, right. but uh, in order to get a grant, you have to slice your research into something that can be measured, that can be uh, presented to a committee. And it's often hypothesis driven rather than exploration driven. And we smell, we need more exploration driven research. And there's been some fantastic work uh, over the last couple of years again. And I think there's a strive towards it, but it's very hard to publish this, this kind of uh, overreaching interdisciplinary research. So I think this is one, one of the things that kind of get people to, to step back from the project in this context. I think COVID, of course, with the anosmia might change that again, that people work between biology and psychology a bit more, because it was clear that this has affected people and that we certainly do not understand both the biology and the psychology well enough. And then we need to combine them both. But uh, I, I think you're right when it comes to silos. Uh, if, you, if you talk to a chemist, they have a completely different understanding than a neuroscientist, than a psychologist. But I think it's hopefully getting together. And yeah. that's, uh, I think that's a matter of creating more dialogue. And what I do find really, really helpful is, for instance, um, when, when people, like, for instance, when you do this podcast, you get a lot of people together to think about it. And you've got more and more also patient advocacy groups through yeah. the whole anosmia thing. I mean, there's a Fifth Sense and Absent in the yeah. UK. And they get people together from all sorts of uh, both life, uh, both people who suffer anosmia um, and doing proper patient advocacy uh, to help clinical researchers get their research realized, recognized and funded. So there is a development and I hope it's going to continue. Yeah, so it is definitely going in the right direction. So you can only hope. And I think that's why I like your book so much because even though it's, you know, it's not about grants and funding and all that, this is an opportunity to kind of look at it across the different disciplines. So. That's what I really appreciate. Thank you so much for giving us all those perspectives. So if you're interested in a particular area, you kind of jump off from this book and dive deeper maybe into a certain discipline, depending on what you like. So thanks for that. <laughs> um, all right, so let's get into some of the, the topics. So I wanted to talk about perception, how we perceive things through our sense of smell, which is a huge subject. I think you talk about that mostly in this book, but. <laughs> Um, we'll get into a little bit more, but um, you write in your book, the perceptual content of odor experience is twofold. Smell sensations are continuously directed at both inward and outward processes, right? So not only does smelling tell us about something, so tell us something about the world, something about people, places, materials, so the outside world, but it also tells us something about us internally as well, which I find so fascinating that it does two of those things. And as somebody who is trying to get people to harness their sense of smell more for their own well-being, you know, taking it from the outside through nature or, I don't know, essential oils or something aromatic, and also internally getting some benefits from it. Tell me a little bit more about how our sense of smell works that way. This is a big question. I know, uh, I'm sorry. It is a big question because it brings us back to the question of what smells are. And of course, on the one hand, you've got everything smells, like everything emanates aromatic molecules. So you do get a sense of the environment of things and also the essence of things. Uh, because the thing is, this is where our eyes can be quite deceptive. I mean, you smell the milk, you don't look at it. Uh, if yeah. you had a banana that smells of bacon, 
you wouldn't think it's a banana, even if it looks like a banana. So there is something by which smells tell us something about it. Uh, but it also at the same time, because we're not just learning about the world, but we're, it's a relational sense. We're learning about these qualities of the world, the essence in relation to our own perception, in relation to our own body, because um, smells or odorants in certain concentrations could kill you. So there's the question of, well, is it harmful? Is it not? Uh, is it pleasant? Is it not? But also, I think there's a form of aesthetic quality to smell, what people often forget, because quite often you've got just kind of this rude, uh, this rudimentary uh, qualitative dimension of, well, it's pleasant or not. I think it's quite much more there's narcotic smells. There are some smells that are attractive in a kind of a erotic sense. There are also certain things that are just aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. I mean, why not? Uh, so uh, it's it's kind of our body is like a measurement instrument, and it measures the the statistical frequencies of molecules in our surroundings, not just this molecule, but this molecule in that context, and the same molecule in different context, in different chemical context, behavioral context can mean different things. So that's why people think it's so flexible and unpredictable. And perhaps some people say subjective, I don't think so. I think it's actually very, very reliable because it tells you about context. Our nose is the most precise instrument to measure context in the behavior in, 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 which you're, in, in which you're smelling something. And that's how it works is the big question. So we know some of the basics, of course, not that we don't know anything, uh, but with every scientific topic, the more you know, the more questions you get. Of course, so we yeah. revive at more and more sophisticated ignorance, so to speak. And if <laughs> um, you, you inhale these chemicals, they interact with the receptors in your nose, which is already kind of like super complicated. If you look at the minute details of, of which features and which receptors, there's lots to be learned still. Uh, that sends a signal, that's the fun part, right into the brain. So you've got basically the sensory neurons going directly into the olfactory bulb, which is just at the frontal lobe, at the front of your uh, of, of your of your skull, um, where it looks first like a map, they're being organized, these signals, and then further transmitted to the olfactory cortex, which is right in the core of your brain, which the fun part is you've got from the ear to the brain only two synapses. And for, for people who don't go into neuroscience, that's much less than, than vision. So in vision, you've got two synapses don't even get you out of the retina, out of the eye, actually. So here you've got chemicals from the air to the core of your brain in two steps. And it looks simple. It's not because the devils are always in the detail. And of course, then the question is like, wait a second, but well, how does it then connect to memory, emotion? How does it connect to just the ability of, for the brain to know what the nose is smelling? There are lots of open questions here. There are a couple of different approaches. And I think the most important thing to understand is that it's flexible. It's never about stable patterns. It's always about context. And uh, this is why I think the measurement analogy is the best so far. I mean, maybe somebody else comes up with a better one, I hope, but yeah. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. I also want to talk about language. Language is also a huge thing in, in the world that I live in because I am trying to get those who can't smell, my students who 
are, are trying to work with essential oils. I'm trying to get them to put more words into what they're smelling, just to connect with it at a more conscious level, right? Because we smell unconsciously all the time. But as soon as you have to put language to a smell, it becomes a conscious experience, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> so, um, and I, I want people to do that um, also because I know a lot of anosmic people who don't have the ability to smell. And I think there's a lot of, we call them designated noses. So people who help people who can't smell to smell by helping describe things in their surroundings or helping um, helping them experience the world around them and with more dimension through at least the words of smelling. So language is something that I find to be particularly important, but I see everywhere, even among my perfumery community, it's incredibly hard to describe odors. Why is that so hard for us? I think because smells are ambiguous by nature. I already mentioned like the same smell in different contexts means something different. Uh, but quite often you have something and the point of, of this flexibility is that you can measure it according to context. If you have no context, your brain is searching. Like, what could this mean? What does it remind me of? And as soon as you get a, a, another clue, like let's say you've got a word or you've got a picture or you've got something else visual, for instance, or even a note, a tone, light a high or low pitch tone you get some further association so this is where suddenly this ambiguity this natural ambiguity becomes contextualized and uh, that's not i think a fault of the system i think this is how the system works works in order to do its job well and as you say language is very important and my my favorite part about language is the fact that not only do you get context but you also we often just think about perception from the outside in Language is a good case to show to what extent we can shape our own consciousness through smells with language. So it's also the other way around. So you know that, of course, if you if you smell something, a complex mixture, you certainly expand the quality of your conscious experience by putting a word to it. If you've got a good wine and suddenly some, somebody says, oh, did you notice that vanilla smell? And suddenly it's there. Yes. out of nowhere like right. you hadn't smelled it before you might have felt like okay it's red wine and suddenly oh like do you smell the the cherry the plum note the blackberry the pepper so in that moment it's there and sometimes you don't even have to re-smell it to find it but it pops suddenly up into as it's 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 very very interesting and it's just the best is, smell i sorry the best sense it's just yeah. amazing sorry go ahead no, no absolutely and this is why i agree with you it's very hard to find words and i think it's two reasons. One thing is the ambiguity of smells. And the other thing is also that we don't actually focus enough on our language. We have the same with colors, actually. That's what people don't realize. Like we have a limited number of names for colors. And if you go to artists, if you go to also different cultures, you have an explosion of names also for colors. One of my favorite ones is Kyonos, which is Greek, and it's a mix between blue and uh, and black. So yeah. because they, they, so there is there is different ways of describing colors, and we just miss it by thinking that everybody describes colors like we do. No, there's a there's a plurality also for other senses. Uh, and plus, we don't train people in words for smells. And I think this needs to be done in childhood already. Yeah. And if you look at the old, like if you look at literature, just prose, novelists, etc., you've got a richness of describing the sensory world, including smells, that we don't do anymore because we're so digitalized in, in our lives. This is why I hated the whole pandemic and Zoom thing, because you don't smell anything anymore. I mean, I was excited about my coffee burning. 
I know like you, we're getting even more removed from our sense of smell through this zoom yep. stuff that it is, it's a problem. It's, it's yep. so true. And, um, I would also argue that, I mean, to your point that we, we need to start early and getting children to describe things. I mean, I, I was in the perfumery world for 20 years and I was around a lot of perfumers and they did such a beautiful job of describing and differentiating, you know, this idea of this thing versus that thing and, and, and noticing the, the nuances and the contextual aspects of smells. There's so much richness in that. And I wish people could just appreciate that part of smelling a lot more. I agree. When, when I interviewed Christophe Laramiel, the perfumer, yes. I was mesmerized. I mean, this is amazing. One, he's, he's amazing. It was one of the most fun interviews. And I, I, I remember because he had a kind of a short uh, uh, moment window and I was running from the bar to my home to just, because otherwise the chance was gone. Yeah. So you yeah. Gotta, like I left my beer. Just like an odor. The yes. <laughs> like Christophe Laramiel, the odor. Uh, that was the interview. But it was, and, and the way he talks about smell is so mesmerizing and this is I think one of the most important things about smell namely not only do you have to uh, can you understand it by talking about it but you have to experience it yourself so one of the no nice things was of course that uh, he gave a presentation at Columbia for a workshop if you experience it, you undergo that transformative experience of sensory perception you cannot just talk about it. it's like art Talking about art is like dancing about architecture sometimes. Uh, yeah. It's it's like, it doesn't, you have to, in order for you to fully understand it, you have to be immersed and you have to be consumed by it, not just consume it, but be consumed by it. It's this kind of interactive thing. And that is for me something quite important and impossible to do with with, with smell in terms of to, to uh, experience smell without smell. Like with vision, you've got kind of, uh, you could say simulations in a much different sense. Of course, you have to perceive, but you've got lots of simulation. With smell, you have to have the materials. You can yes. create images with these materials, but you have to have that physical interaction. Let me ask you, of all the research that you've done for the book and over the years, what do you think people fundamentally get wrong about our sense of smell? What are these preconceived notions or what do they get wrong? What should people know? Oh, I can tell you what annoys me the most and that what else is also on the list. Yeah. Uh, the first thing that gets on my nerves and I cannot, I cannot be nice about it. It's like, ah, oh, but smell is just subjective. No, it's not. It's the most reliable objective sense there ever was because um, it's not about objectivity. It's not like philosophers say, oh, you've got an input and you've got the perception, the same perception of the same stuff. No, the most objective part is the mechanisms behind it. Do you get a reliable perception by the biology? So the genetics, the, the, the neurocommunication. So it's actually the most objective thing that you can perceive the same thing differently in different contexts because the context is different. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of biology. And so this subjectivity thing and discrediting smell is not giving us a true account of the world. Uh, I don't know whether I can swear on your podcast, but I would swear uh, otherwise. Go for it. Uh, okay. <laughs> 
bullshit. You can quote me on that. It's just bullshit. Um, the other things, oh, it's an evolutionary decline. No, it's not. Uh, this is again when when people say, well, you know, the the olfactory bulb has shriveled up. Uh, no, no, no. What happens actually is that the rest of the cortex has grown. So size is always in proportion to, and uh, the density of of the olfactory bulb is quite high. So the the next thing people say, yeah, but dogs have many more receptors. Oh yeah, that's yeah, a but, big me- yeah. The dog theory. Oh yeah, and you're Sorry. like, yeah. Well, of course they have more receptors because where are their noses? They're on the their snouts. They're on the ground where lots of contaminants are. So there's a lot of feces and urine, and they can infect you. So they have these long winded uh, noses where a lot of these odors are filtered out. So they have to have more receptors in order to perceive something. I mean, dogs are amazing at smelling, but so are humans. So you you just can't pay me to crawl on an airport to sniff out something. Uh, I mean, I, I'm happy if dogs do it because they seem to be happy doing it. But seriously, you can't pay me. Um, but humans are much better at smell if they only pay attention. So this is the this is also something. It's evolutionary decline. We're bad at smelling. We can't describe smells. Also wrong. It's just a matter of training. It's a it's the most flexible and cognitively sophisticated sense if we just train it uh, or cognitively impacted sense. Uh, then the subjectivity so these are these are some of the things that, you're very yeah, animated but... when you're saying <laughs> i love it it's very it's very clear these things bother you so and i and i completely agree with you they would bo- they bother me too so let's flip the coin so what are the things that you just want to tell people that is awesome about our sense of smell what 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 do you want if like if you could get people to do something with their sense of smell what would you suggest they do like what are some easy things they could do. Just, I always tell people to smell the world around them. As simple as that, engage with the smells around them. And that's precisely it because what you can do, you can expand the quality of your conscious awareness. Like you're not just seeing things, you're not just, you know, whatever, there might be some smells, but the more you pay attention to smells, the more you pay attention to the subtle nuances in your perception, you actually expand the quality of your consciousness, which is amazing that you can just do it by paying attention. And I mean, the next thing is what, 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 what is just mind blowing to me is that Smell is the only sense for which fragrance chemists, perfumers can artificially create entirely new molecules that have right. never existed. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 you, you literally expand the world in a material sense and you literally expand the quality of your conscious experience. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that is just mind boggling. And think also, any other that you sense can, does that. No. Yeah, I mean, you, you can, of course, you can make, make new drawings, etc. But there's, there's a combinatory explosion when it comes to what you can perceive. Uh, so that through, through like, you can, new chemicals, new smells, something that never existed on, on, on Earth, in nature, that's just mind-boggling. And that's, I'm trying to, to, to get people excited precisely because of that, because it just shows that, of course, everything is based on biology, but that doesn't mean it's limited, but more, yes. what are the combinatory possibilities possibilities for exploring things and also our mind is not bound to our present state the brain is flexible uh, through learning through the acquisition of language uh, interaction so when we talk about smells so if we were to share a meal if we were to share wine the most important part about smell is the social interaction because we discover new qualities with each other 
And that is why I do think the most important part also for families is to share meals, just to talk about what they're perceiving. It's it's kind of, it gets you curious about the world, about your own body as well. Uh, we're so disconnected from mm -hmm. our own sensory experience by now. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to get people to, to be excited about as well. Excellent, you and me both. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll conquer the world. Don't worry. We'll get the people oh yeah, oh yeah. World world dominate nose domination. <laughs> one nose at a time. <laughs> <laughs> one, one, one nostril. Yeah, one nostril at a time. There you go. Um, so I so I hear that you're building a lab there at Indiana University, and did I read that you call it the stink tank? <laughs> yes, but they I did not that. let me. They did not let me put that oh, on the official no. registrar. It's like, ah, uh, well, you might want to kind of put your name to it. So okay, so I'm going <laughs> to put it on the on the door, the stink tank. It took me. It took me one evening, and I was. I had a glass of wine. I was like, what do they call the the, the lab? And at some point, it's like, ah, the stink tank. Um, <laughs> Let's put it that way, at least the students seem to like it. Uh, yeah, but it's, it's who would have thought that the global pandemic kind of delays the whole endeavor of opening up a lab. So the uh, they had to renovate the building because there was asbestos. So they kind of renovated the whole thing, which is great because then I could at least um, organize the lab in such a way that uh, I can I can I can do some kind of pandemic proof proofing uh, that we're not kind of in the same room, all these kind of things. Hopefully it's close to being finished. About yeah. one month, one month, it should be finished in one month. Uh, I'm getting a new graduate student in. I've got two undergraduates working with me, a research assistant, another graduate student. So we're four, me plus four people. We're going to do a couple of things and I'm going to work with a couple of uh, people overseas as well as in the US. So uh, Terry Acri at Cornell, who, you know, from the book, the, uh, yeah. the, the, the uh, fragrance flavor chemist who, did one of the most amazing quotes for the book. I remember I was in his car, we're driving to his lab hours and hours because he's like, you know what? Just put the recorder on. on. Maybe at some point I say something meaningful. Uh, we talked about God knows what, I mean, everything. And at some point he tried to convince me of qualia, which is what philosophers like to call this kind of subjective experience, which I think is a nonsense concept. I told him, so he tried to convince me that, no, no, qualia exists. It's like, no, they don't. So he tried to convince <laughs> me. And after, I kid you not, one or two hours of in the car, just talking, he, he tried to convince me of something I think is nonsense. He just was so frustrated that he was like, but the brain is not a German chemist. And I was like, tick, that goes in the book. Yeah, and I told, the brain. That was one of my favorite quotes. And at some point I told this to uh, a mutual colleague, uh, Gordon Shepard, who's a neuroscientist. Like you wouldn't believe what Terry said. And he looked at me, but the brain of a German, German chemist is one. And uh, I, I just, I just, I just love that. Uh, so that just shows again the the nice atmosphere of the community. But yeah. these were also the people that uh, supported me in terms of building up the lab. So I was okay. a trained philosopher who actually went into science, which is usually it's the other way around. Right, right. Um, bit naive again with like changing the topic halfway through a PhD. I, you, you stumble into it and you just do the work and you hope it goes well. Um, I think that that kind of minimum amount of optimism and naivety uh, is sometimes needed to do these kind of things. Yeah. Uh, but I had great support from the scientists. So I was uh, positively and I was also amazed at just how much support I got. It was Gordon Shepard who actually said, well, these ideas could partly be tested have you thought of going experimental and he he mentored me um on, on at, like at one conference over breakfast what kind of method to choose what kind of questions i thought are, are interesting and and how they connect to a method so that was quite amazing so hopefully fingers crossed it will start this fall 
Well, what, what, so tell me, what are you trying to, like, what do you want to explore? So I'm incredibly fascinated by categorization. So how can the same odor be sometimes A and sometimes B? So uh -huh. what happens in terms of the signature of that odor? Because then the brain must somehow decide on a signature. And I don't think it's a specifically spatial signature. People always try to find the map of odors or they try to find some kind of representation, some kind of pattern. And I think it's much more temporal as well. So it's not just spatial, but there's a temporal code to it, like a Morse code. Um, so I'm, I'm combining two things. One thing is EEG, electroencephalography, which is okay. where you've got the NAD with the electrodes and you record the brain waves. Was considered to be the worst possible instrument to study smell because you've got this net with electrodes on your scalp, okay. and the signals are very weak because, uh, uh, well, one of the things with the olfactory cortex, of course, is buried in the middle of the brain. So the signals you can't locate. So it's not a good method to localize things and also to to pick up necessarily uh, from from the area you want to do. That being said, you do have the frontal lobe part, uh, which is the olfactory bulb and connected to the orbital frontal cortex, which is involved in decision-making, which is precisely what I want, because this is like the, where's this switch back and forth, like ah. between A and B, between let's say Parmesan and vomit, between the, like the same odor having different- That's your different favorite associations. one, I know. Oh, it is, it is. I I, I just, I, I told Rachel Hertz, like, I love this experiment so much. Uh, I would love to actually recreate her experiments, which was a behavioral experiment with EEG, just to see what actually goes on. Because yeah. people just see, behavioral experiments as well you know that's just reports by people yeah I think that's important uh because that's what we do um but also like what's the neural signature behind it and so the second part to the EG is the olfactometer which is built by Terry at this moment it's a couple of weeks uh, it should be done mm -hmm. and finished um where you've got a controlled exposure to odor because one of the problems with smell as you know is that you habituate quickly yeah the same smell especially complex mixtures you've got the receptors that adapt at different time speeds to different molecules. So how do you do reproducible experiments? How do you know that what you're measuring is really what you think you're measuring? And he created an olfactometer with, which has a exposure rate of 70 milliseconds. So your nose doesn't habituate. You can do an experiment for 12 minutes with the same smell without somebody going like, don't smell anything anymore. Oh, this smells weird now, or oh, this smells different. So. Amazing. We just now, the, the first months are not going to be that exciting, but it's going to be trying to get the two instruments together, like to see whether we're really measuring what we want to measure. And then hopefully next year are uh, seeing how can you, how does the brain categorize the same smell? Um, how does, how does that shift if you give other cues, uh, whether it's um, verbal cues, whether it's images, congruency, all these kind of things. And the nice thing is there's been a growing community also in EG dedicated to olfaction, especially a group at Stockholm. Um, so you've got Maria Larsen, you've got Jonas Olafsson, who I was lucky enough to interview because he was in New York at the time. Uh, there's a, a Johan Lundström, of course, who did the first bulba EEG. So he had kind of electrodes under the yeah, eyes, yeah. Uh, no, over the eyebrows, sorry, uh, to record the first EEG from the olfactory bulb and to determine this is the signal from the olfactory bulb. I think it's a spectacular achievement and it just came out like uh, one or two years ago so you couldn't imagine how happy I was uh, everybody who said like well I wouldn't do EEG in all factions like see that's precisely <laughs> that's precisely what you should do now right right I feel like you're the kind of person if somebody says no no don't do that you, you're exactly somebody who would want to do that yeah that's what my mother like had that. to realize yeah yeah my, my <laughs> mother was like oh dear oh dear I shouldn't have said that yes <laughs> 
no, no, that's good. That's good. Well, I look forward to seeing what you discover or uh, smelling what you discover. We shouldn't say seeing all the time. Um. <laughs> but, but, well, you, you might, especially if if uh, it stands at some point and everything goes well with with kind of easing, uh, easing down with the pandemics, you should come to Bloomington. And oh, uh, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, you might end up a subject, but yes. Yeah, <laughs> I'm okay with that. I don't mind being experimented on. <laughs> I trust you. Um, but no, that's exciting. So maybe we'll have to have a follow up one day when you've when you've done a bunch of work and you could share that with my audience. That would be wonderful. All right, I've taken up so much of your time, but I, I have usually three questions that I like to ask my guests at the end. I, I sent it to you a while ago. You might not even remember. But so here are the three questions. What's your favorite smell right now? Do you have a favorite smell right now? I do. I love that question so much. Uh, it, it sounds weird when I say it, but I'll tell you why I say it. It's chlorine. Um, oh. So it's of, of all things, because the thing is this, this uh, summer, I want to go back to my family. I want to go to Germany. The travel ban was not released. So I was stuck here. I couldn't go anywhere in terms of family, friends. So, well, I've got friends here, but it's not yeah, it's you want to see your family. Yeah. So in order to counterbalance that and not feel like a trapped, a caged animal, I started swimming and uh, they open up the, the kind of little pool here was pretty empty because the students are gone. And I was swimming almost every day for an hour. And it was like a meditation. I'm not I'm not a good swimmer. I'm super slow. I'm not very good at it, but I enjoy it. I like the kind of meditative you're connecting with your own body and the chlorine. It's just it's just the, the smell of this summer. So my current favorite smell is chlorine. I love it. I love it. Um, do you have a favorite scent memory? That you can recall and share it's it's one of those many people do recall in terms of uh i remember one day i was going through a diy market and uh, it was years and years ago i was still living in berlin so it's over 10 years ago over 15 years ago oh my goodness <laughs> um <clears throat> i just aged uh but but i walked through the diy market to get i don't know what something and on one corner I was suddenly reminded of the garage of my father who passed away a couple of years before. And I don't know how it, because not the entire hallway, just this one particular moment and it uh, flipped the switch and I tried to catch it back. So the thing is I walked by, it's like suddenly this image of my father's garage, I was thinking of my father. And there was this very intense, because this is what I connected with my father, like his garage, he was very good with his hands. He, he loved to build stuff. And I tried to walk back and forth and I couldn't find it again. And Aww. just this, this ephemeral but intense, it just, it just stays with you. And that's when, uh, that's why I also wrote in the book, like what, what you keep of people is their clothes because this is what connects you. Are you, you connected with their smell, the presence. That is really what, what captured my attention in, in that moment and so intensely that, yeah, it's, it's one corner at a DIY market. Look at and that. And do the trick, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And then the third question, do you have five smells that best describe you? I can't wait to hear this one. Okay, well, I start off with the perhaps most obvious one, which is fresh cut green grass. Oh. I love that smell. It's, ah, oh, I could, I could roll in the grass. Then the second one would be musk. I hmm. don't know why, but I like musk a lot. It's, it's, um, 
sometimes you don't have an explanation for it but a lot of the also also when it comes to like natural moss the kind of dirty intense animalic but also if you've got it in perfume i've got lots of perfumes with musk uh then sulfur oh. uh i would say sulfur uh partly because sulfur is one of the first aromatic molecules formed in the creation of the universe that you could smell if you, there was a nose and it almost everything like so many things have sulfur and i start my day with an egg so there is always sulfur starting my day like there has to be the perfectly timed egg <laughs> you know what i mean as a german uh then coffee on the same on the same reason coffee is lovely because you, you, it's also it's just not just because I'm obsessed with coffee and I'm a big coffee fan and drinker, but also because the aroma itself is so complex. It's hundreds and hundreds of molecules, none of which smells of coffee. You have to have the whole mix coming together. And in it, you've got indole, like this little yes. fecal, this little fecal smelling molecule, uh, which you don't perceive in the whole mixture, but it's in there. So in order to have something so complex and nice, sometimes you have to accept the shitty elements, which I think is also true for each and every one of us. We're not just angels. We do sometimes have a little bit of a, of a shitty element to us as well. And I embrace that. It's part. Uh, on that note, Jasmine, which oh. also has some indole. And, yeah, I was going to say, there's a connection there. Yeah. Yeah, and jasmine is one of my favorite smells that also connects me to my hometown. So uh, I was born in Weimar, and the big, like one of the big gardens there, the big parks, is the Goethe Park. And during May, June, you've got this smell of jasmine just permeating the place. And while I was finishing the book revision, I was walking every morning to the library, the Anna Maria Library, which is a beautiful library, and just I got the jasmine every morning. So I think yeah. So these are these are the smells. I love it. They're so different, yet they're, it's kind of like exactly how you are. You're just exploring things from different angles and, and the scents that describe you are the same. So thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening to my rambles about smell. No. <laughs> no, I want to thank you for joining me today. I could honestly talk to you for hours and I hope we have the opportunity to, to meet up in person with this pandemic. You know, everybody's on Zoom, but Thank you for sharing some of your perspective. I want everybody to go out and get Smellosophy. It's definitely worth your time. There's a lot of amazing information in there. I, you know, it takes a while to get through because it is so, it's it's a very comprehensive book, but. It took me a while to write it. So, so yeah, it's good imagine. if people take their time to read it. It's like, okay, this was fine, fine, next. It's like, no, no, it took years. It took years. It took years. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining me on An Aromatic Life. If you're interested in learning more about your sense of smell from all different perspectives, subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends too. And it would be really helpful if you could rate the podcast so it helps others find it too. I also invite you to check out my website, falkaromatherapy.com, where you'll find information about workshops, courses, and other programs I offer. And make sure you grab my free audio training, How to Smell to Be Well, which you can download from my website. Until next time, remember to smell everything and have a wonderful day.